importance of mentorship goes traditional is top down, bottom up, side to side. And we don't have to be the older person of wiser experience, me to be a mentor, not at all. My daughter mentors me, my daughter's 25 years old. My 29 year old daughter mentors me, you follow me? That was a clip from today's guest, TJ Kostecki. TJ is the owner of Vision Training Soccer and Vision Training for Life. His career spans over four decades and six universities. He served as an athletic director, professor, and a division one and three coach. TJ conducts vision training soccer seminars and workshops for organizations, sports teams, coaches, parents, and players of all ages around the world. And he's got a brand new book that's just coming out now called Eyes Up. This is an awesome conversation. It's not often that I have another coach uh, on, on the podcast, and this conversation's fun because he brings up a lot of his philosophy of how he works with people. And, you know, we, we kick it around a bunch, we chop it up, and he did a great job of explaining his ideas and also helping to inspire some new thinking for me. But before we get to it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Welcome back, TJ. <laughs> welcome to the show. Great to be here. Okay, so for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? Um, I am a, a father, uh, first of all. I am a coach, a teacher, a lifelong learner, motivational speaker. I'm a listener leader and a follower. Um, I'm someone who survived eight near-death experiences. So there's a lot to who I am that, I guess, a larger tapestry. That answer, you know, that when I meet with people before the interview, you get to know them a little bit. Um, and sometimes when I ask that question, people are like, oh, I'm I'm this, or I'm a couple of things. Based on the amount of time we spent together, which has been short, but I really enjoyed our conversations. That was a really, you kind of hit on all the points that I would have felt about you, like coming up, because there's like, still waters run deep with you. There's a lot of stuff going on. And you seem to me to be the kind of person who takes a lot of lived experience and turns it into something that you can give back with other people. Yes, I. that's what fuels me. Actually, I discovered several years ago that my purpose is to help people live their purpose or discover, find their purpose. Okay. This is a good... Are you ready for a tough question right off the top? Yeah. What's purpose? Purpose is what you're doing, what you're living, what fuels you. Purpose is what helps your... What's making your heart skip an extra beat? What do you feel excited about? I'm getting chills right now thinking about describing our conversation right now. So when you're there in that space, you're in a good space and you're in the right space. So let's discover and let's talk about and think about what that space is like. The way North American society is structured and it's kind of like uh, live to work mentality. And I am speaking ultra broad strokes because I know there's all sorts of different kinds of lived experiences, but like say kind of 
North American is a cap. North America is a capitalistic society. I have no commentary on that. We're about to go to the bad of it. It just is. Is finding your purpose and living it a practical thing for people? Yes. Tell me about it. Absolutely. I I think one, they both go hand in hand. Success in America, where cap, capitalism is about success and collection, earning money, earning houses, travel, freedom, buying things, right? In terms of that's success, correct? The, uh, one of the ideas are that success leads to happiness. No, that's backwards. Happiness leads to success. All research supports that. When you're happy and you're joyful and you're in a good place, you perform at your best. Yeah. And when you perform at your best, you become successful. Yeah. So those two things are deeply connected, absolutely deeply connected. So helping folks, reminding them that it's the purposeful part that really leads to these other things that are happening in your life is the essential part. And how do we unlock that? How do we have a conversation or how do you think about that and have your own conversation so that you're unlocking that potential that you have or living it, maybe you're living it and discovering it. And these other pieces, all of a sudden they start happening because you're in a great place. So this philosophy that you have, how did you come to this? My philosophy is, is life lived experience. Uh, it's, it's a collection of reading, learning, praying, meditating, observing, failing, struggling, growing, succeeding. So it's a collection of so many things around. It's not just, you know, I've, I've read this book and it all of a sudden inspired me or this event happened. It's a collection of, of living life and being, being present and paying attention. So you've got all these things that happen, and I want to get in, into a really depth, in-depth conversation about that. But you've had all of these like lived experiences, and you've been able to take the pieces, almost like, let's say, Lego, put them together into something that essentially, uh, a way of thinking, a way of, um, and you're going to have to correct me on this, it's um, refreshing your lens. Is that mm -hmm. Refreshing your lens of like looking at the world so that you can identify and live your purpose, correct? Yes, it's one of them for sure, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's like, I think I'm just kind of... Yes, 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 yes. How did you get from, here's a bunch of stuff that I've gone through, to, oh, I've actually come up with something. I've been able to build these things into something I can offer back to people. Was it a, hey, I'm going to do this and create this kind of way of thinking that I'm going to show? Or did you suddenly be like, oh, actually, I've kind of come up with this way of thinking that I want to share with people? Great question. So um, I have I have two um, two businesses. Um, I consult in a space of soccer training. I have a very unique uh, soccer business with a partner called Vision Training Soccer. It's essentially it's a salmon swimming upstream. It's a an outlier way of training people in the soccer world that I've done for four decades. I've certified in our methodology coaches around the world and domestically, and then Vision Training for Life which has been an offshoot. Vision Training for Life is the motivational leadership training, helping people uh, discover and, and moving on their journey. And it's life, life training and leadership training. Vision Training Soccer began where we train players to scan the field. I don't know if you've ever watched soccer or sport in general. I grew, I grew up playing soccer too. Oh, you did? Yeah. Awesome. We're, um, I just community-based soccer. Cool. Yeah. Did uh, any place on the field or in a goal? Where did you play? What position? That's when I was a little kid, man. 
I think I played like halfback or something. Halfback, yeah, cool. Halfback midfield. So, so you play in the center, so midfield. So midfielder has to have his or her head on a swivel, right? Makes sense? Because if not, then defenders come and steal the ball or you don't see opportunities. Makes sense? Well, so this is a caveat. I sucked. Like, I, was not, I was not a good soccer player, but I loved it. You I loved, loved playing. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So vision training would have helped you. <laughs> vision training is the, was the missing link. <laughs> It is never too late. Okay. It is never too late. Okay. With that, I'm gonna call up my whole team members and be like, "Back, back." <laughs> it's. I, I can share stories about that. It isn't too late. I did a work, workshop in Ukraine, in Kiev, on on vision training soccer, and uh, with a club team. And there was a 39 year old dude that played for Kiev Dynamo, like like playing for the Yankees in soccer. And after we finished the workshop, uh, on the field session. You know, I asked, how, how do you guys feel? And he had this like perplexed look, like this sad look. And I said, he goes, I loved it. I go, why do you look so sad? He goes, I didn't realize I had another level to my game. Mm. I love that. I'm like, wow, you're 39, you're retired and you're better? Like, wow, that's, talk about validation. That's, I'll get into the whole idea about like coaching and why I think it's so important at any point in your career. But so you've got these two businesses and they're, they're one uh, is, is soccer based vision training. Then one is like life slash kind of uh, corporate or career. Mm -hmm. But then you're also now uh, a division one coach as well. Actually now I'm division three. So I was division one for 20 years. Okay. Bart is division three. Division so I segues into division three. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're running these two kind of connected businesses and you're also a coach mm -hmm. and you're also a father. Yes. And now a writer as well. <laughs> now a writer because you have a book coming yeah, out. Yeah, correct. So a lot of stuff to unpack there. Um, let's stick though around, around the vision training because I know there's um, so much of it is tied into leadership. So why don't you unpack for us just what the, the general idea of the thinking or the philosophy is? Sure. So the philosophy is the five P's. Perceive, process, plan, perform, and persist. The most important is perception. The wider, the brighter, the deeper your perception, your ability to gather, process a lot of information, plan, perform, and persist is the have a loop. When you're persistent about something, it becomes automatic. You don't have to think about it. Who the gentleman helping us here is Mike, right? How do I know Mike's name? What am I saying to remember Mike's name? I'm doing what? Repeating what? Mike, right? I've said Mike how many times? 12 times. Okay. So every time I've said Mike, the way our brain works, I remember his name. When you're persistent about being perceptive, refreshing your lens, rewiring your brain, eyes wide open, judge less, accept more, mm -hmm. we gather information. Right. When we gather information, we're learning, right? And when we're learning, we become wiser. And when we become wiser, we're moving forward in life. So it's a very simple model. It's not rocket science here. It's just reminding yourself to be open and to listen and to gather information that's gonna help you become a better version of yourself and to help others. Um, okay, so that's one. That's a vision training for life. Okay. Vision training soccer is those same ideas on the field. So on the soccer part, most of training so that you're aware in soccer is, is vocal on offense. People are shouting. Around, man on, turn. Here, I'm open. Yelling, okay? Most of training. The highest levels, Argentina just won the World Cup with Messi playing beautifully. The highest levels on offense 
It's all what? Gathering what? Data information. Data information. Yeah. All right? Nobody's going, Messi, give me the ball, I'm open. Nobody does that, right? <laughs> no one does that. But in our training methodology, in America specifically, if you go watch a game, if we watch a game, we go to New York over here somewhere in the park in Brooklyn, you can hear everybody yelling and screaming at each other. Okay? That's noise. As a musician, as an artist, when you think and performing, noise destroys flow. When we're in the flow state, artist, musician, writer, dancer, singer, we perform at our best, right? Because our brain slows down. Noise destroys flow. So if you have the ball, right, and I'm yelling at you, I've just destroyed your flow. So if you look over there, for example, just, Aram, Aram, what, did, what happened when I shouted your name? Well, you zoom my direction back to you. Right. So whatever you were looking and thinking, you follow me, I just eliminated your thought process. Right. So the training that we do on the soccer part is the outliner where it empowers players to make the decision. Right. So if you take that into vision training for life and leadership, and if you remember me, I said I'm a, I'm a learner and I'm a leader, I'm also a follower, and I haven't mentioned that at all, I'm also a follower. Because leaders, it's important to know when do I step back, right, and provide someone else that space to lead, to empower them. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So. I'm going to push on a couple things here. Go, 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 go. When you are, when you are bringing this methodology either to your work as a coach, where you're actually working uh, with the team over a season, and when you're working with the team, just out of interest for me, when does would you say like the coaching season end? Like when when are you not working with your team? So in America, on the college level, uh, coaching season generally from August to November. Okay, and then you have an off-season that runs from January through April. Um, you have a shortened season, non-traditional season, where you do strength and conditioning, and you have a, a shortened, basically like a eight-week, six to eight-week season, uh, six weeks generally. So that's the seasonal training in soccer at my level right now. Okay. On the pro level, it goes 10 months. It varies, depends on the level, yeah. So you're with people where you're kind of informing each other's process, the way you think, your world vision, all that kind of stuff on a very frequent level. When you're not working as a coach, but you're then doing your, your work um, with your consulting in a soccer world, how long are you with players? Uh, depends. It depends. I could be with someone for as little as 10 minutes. Uh, so I, this summer I traveled around the country and I spoke at a half dozen uh, camps, uh, a, a program called Exact. Sports. It's the largest uh, soccer sports recruiting camp. So I was their keynote speaker around the country, and I I did ten minutes of training. I only had ten minutes to talk to them, and then I also was the keynote speaker. I had forty-five minutes in front of anywhere from two to three hundred young players, just in a circus tent, talking about things that we talk about right now, and having to move them in their journey, getting them to think about things they haven't thought about. So it varies. So sometimes ten minutes. All I got is ten minutes with someone, and then they play. Or I have 45 minutes, so it varies. Yeah. So in, in your coaching, you're with people for long periods of time. So you can inform that thought process. They can inform you because you're also a follower, as you said. In your consulting of the soccer world, shorter time frames, but they're people within the genre of thinking. So you come in as this like, you know, person who really has a strong background, and you're talking about something they can apply to something they're doing. Correct. What about when you go into um, the life realm or the corporate realm? And the reason I'm talking about this and what I'm interested in your take in 
is I see a lot of people who are experts in other fields bring their stuff into the corporate world and they, they are able to talk, they are able to give people a good experience. Like they sit there, they're like, oh, that was such, I loved, I loved that person or I love what that person was talking about. They're gone the next day. So what, as someone who's like got a consulting firm, my uphill battle is always against all the training that people have been through where they're like, I literally learned nothing in that thing. And so I still always start from like point zero with them where they're like, I've been through 20 things like this in my career, 40 things like this or 50. I've learned 5% of things from all of those things combined. How are you going to change my, my world? And that's the uphill battle. And I would say any consultant faces that, including yourself. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. But you're talking about stuff that I think is like very philosophically compelling, like really, really interesting. How do you make it sticky and actionable for someone who is their day to day isn't thinking about this at all? So someone who's like an athlete, mm-hmm. whose whole world is like discipline and figuring to step out, they're going to probably have an easier idea of playing with some of these ideas versus someone who's like, oh, like that's just not what my world is. They go to a training with you. How do you make it sticky for them and executable afterwards rather than just a good experience? So what I, a couple ways to do it. One, reading. I recommend books to read. Mm-hmm. Two, I ask them to think about what their what their their lived purpose is, mm-hmm. and what their goals are, mm-hmm. and how they're getting there. What are the challenges that they're having? So there's a, there's a, there's input. It's not like I come in here. I have all the answers. Let me let me fix it. It's not a that's not. It's what, not like a lecture. No, it's it's it's, it's engaging. So I ask questions such as, um, what's the most important moment in your life and why? I ask questions that in your life journey, is there someone who believed in you and saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself? And if there was, who was that? And I'm gonna ask you that question. In your life journey, is there someone in your life, anyone that at some point saw something in you a little bit special that you perhaps didn't see in yourself? Yes, my friend Dave Larson. Can you share, please? So Dave Larson is a friend of mine who lives in Seattle. And although him and I have very different career paths, every single thing I do is based off something I've seen him do in some way or the other. Uh, his attention to detail, how genuinely interested he is in people, how like truly accepting of other people he is, how fiercely he'll defend an idea but how open he is to, to shifting ideas if someone has like a good argument. So he's my best friend. And when, because I'm a very um, empathetic person, I'm also very sensitive and I can get shook pretty quickly on things. And he's the guy that I go to when I need someone to have unwavering vision or belief in me. It's always him. He has unwavering belief in me. And so he has seen things in me that I've been able to um, actualize over time that he's like, yeah, of course you did that. And I'd be like, whew, like that. He has been more of a mentor, coach, slash also like cheerleader than anyone else in my life. Beautiful. So the reason I ask that question is I, when I talk about mentorship, one of the 10 qualities of leadership I talk about in the workshop, I start with integrity and I end with confidence and belief. And one of them is mentorship, the importance of having mentors. And who are the mentors in your life? And the importance that mentorship goes traditional is top down, bottom up, side to side. 
And we don't have to be the older person of wiser experience, me to be a mentor, not at all. My daughter mentors me. My daughter's 25 years old. My 29-year-old daughter mentors me. You follow me? So when I ask that question of thought leaders, of CEOs, or people in business, that your ability, your power, your every act that you do is influencing every employee that works under you, every single one. You're, you're modeling all the time. So are you modeling the kind of behavior you want your employees to, to, to have? And that's how our brain works. That's how we're wired. So when you pause and you think about that, you start evaluating. And if, and if you're doing it, if you're crushing it, that's awesome. If not, what does that look like? What does that look like? Do you understand the needs of your employees? I just did a workshop on Thursday for 50 Gen Z students. They're in Bar Career Development Office. They do a four-day beautiful workshop. They bring in speakers. They ask me to speak. I start off the workshop. I said, write three qualities of transformative leaders. What's a transformative leader in your mind? All right. What do you want a boss to look like? All right. And what I mean by someone asks, what do you mean by transformative? I said, well, transformative or trans transformational is someone that finds ways of giving more. How can I help you serve you more and perhaps take less as opposed to transactional? What can I do for you? Let's have this transaction. You follow me? Yeah. So how are we being transformative? The list, I looked at them on my phone this morning, actually, because I wanted to post it. I haven't had a chance to post it on my social media. What were the, what were the top qualities? What would you guess would be the top qualities from that group? Yeah, yeah. Empathy. Uh -huh. Understanding. Compassionate. Vulnerable. Uh -huh. This is what that generation is looking at. Uh -huh. So if you're a CEO and you're a leader, those are critical, crucial skills for you to develop if you want to keep employees and if you want to hire employees. Because they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna read that through you in a, in a New York minute, my friend. A New York minute. I love that. I love that saying. All right. I'm going to push even further, though. So what I'm hearing is you're taking a big idea, but you're boiling it down to specifics. And you're asking people to do like a thought process around that. Like you'll ask a tough question, but you want them to get specific. And the way that I would describe that is like very rarely is someone asked to, if, if you say, um, hey, what does that taste like? Someone says cinnamon, you know, it tastes like cinnamon. You'd be like, describe the taste of cinnamon without using the word cinnamon. People are like, oh, geez, I don't know. If you get someone to describe a flavor without using the name of the flavor, they can mostly do it, but it's, they have to be very specific about it. So if you're talking about, um, let's say like, hey, what's a quality of a leader? I want a great leader. Okay, well, what does that actually specifically mean to you? What you're saying is they actually break it down into very specific buckets. If someone said to me, I want an empathetic leader, or I want a vulnerable leader, I'd be like, okay, now break that down further. What does that look like in practice? What are the behaviors of a vulnerable leader? Like, tell me the specifics. Like, think of a vulnerable sure. leader you've had and, and actually break that down. I get them to break that down to behaviors, and I say, okay, what are the skills associated with that? Like, don't just say vulnerability, but how can someone, what's a skill that would be associated with vulnerability? I get like the roots of the tree all the way down. That to me is how you make something that could be broad and kind of good experience, but not really like executable. That's how you can turn something that's, is like something that's sticky and executable. So it sounds like that's what you do. Yes. It's like yeah. big, meaningful topics. Like the reason I said a flavor is like, I hear a lot of people talk about um, as leaders, they'll say, I want to be vulnerable. Oh, that's awesome. Like, it's great. <laughs> and then and they'll say, so from now on, I will be vulnerable. And then I go, that's terrible. Like, stop. 
Yeah, but that's not that's not what we mean. Yeah. We don't mean that. Like, don't start telling someone like you feel sad for no reason. Like, I was, how are you doing? I'm sad. But conceptually, I love things like let's talk about purpose. Let's talk about vulnerability. Let's talk about empathy. Where I get, and I wanted to see how you could play with these ideas, and, yeah. and, and I knew you could, right? So yeah. I, I hope you feel that I was. We're having a good back and forth. Here. Yeah, we're having a great back. Not a good. We're having a great okay. back and forth. Because it's something that I have to say psychologically. I feel that it, like just from a, a therapist's point of view, most people want to be the best versions of, of themselves as right. often as often as they can. Yes. Few people wake up and be like, "I'm going to be awful today. I'm going to be terrible." Like maybe on occasion someone's like, "Man, I'm the bad news." But most people want to be their best selves. Mm-hmm. And their best selves can often be described in these broad strokes. Mm-hmm. I want to be a friend to all. I want to be kind. I sure. want to be gentle. I want to be empathetic. But when you say, okay, how do you do that? Without the specificity of understanding what that is, when you get into the pinch points of tension or the pinch points of habit, it's very easy just to default to what your normal behavior would be. But when you have specificity like you're talking about and you really dive deep into it, it helps you have more applicable, executable stuff that you do every day that over time can become a habit and that's why I was pushing on it because your ideas are compelling to me and I want to see how you make it executable and sticky. Great. Uh, can I uh, can I give you an example of gratitude and happiness? Yeah. This fits right into fits really well because it has to be sticky. It, it can't be just these ideas you throw against the wall and then they fall down off the wall. It's all about being sticky. Right. So one of the one of the things I talk about in, in my space is that I haven't had a bad day in in eight years. Wow. I have, and I I just said this at the CEO the other day, and I got a <gasps> from a student like, yesterday was a bad day for me. <laughs> you haven't had one in eight years. What is that all about, right? And uh, like unpack that. And I said, I don't exaggerate. I don't make up stories. And I really haven't. And why? Because I choose to. And nine years ago, I had a really bad day. I was unexpectedly divorced after being 22 plus years marriage, you know, with two kids and in a seemingly great place. And then my world fell apart, fell apart. And I'm, I'm in my apartment, it's below zero, and this is, this, is, this is where my life has become after my career, my family, and where I was. It was, it was, it was an awful place. So how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you dig out of that? Um, it was hard, I'd never, my, my former wife balanced all the bills, she took care of all the bills too. Um, I have alimony, I have child support. I was eating macaroni and cheese the first month because I'm a soccer coach. I'm not an American football coach or basketball coach making crazy money. I'm just a small Olympic sport coach. Uh, actually, my heart is beating thinking about those that time. Um, a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer. You find out who cares about you, who really loves you when you're down like that. And people that disappear and don't want to be a part of you were never real friends. Uh, and a lot of walks, you know, a lot of, a lot of TJ time, thinking and processing. And the folks that in my life that cared about me were there for me. My cousin George and his wife Nadine. And reading, and reading other people's stories. Reading, reading Viktor Frankl's story. Have you read, read *Man's Search for Meaning*? No. Incredible book. Viktor Frankl. Someone give give to me that book. Survived three concentration camps. He lived into his nineties. 
wrote over 30 books. And uh, he came up with logotherapy. I don't know if you're familiar with logotherapy in terms of helping people in traumatic experiences uh, emerge and find, find direction in their life. And one of the things, two things that out of that book were really powerful is that um, one is he said, those people that lived the longest were the ones that had something to look forward to. Connecting with a family member, traveling, painting, getting a degree. Those that did not perish early, sooner. And then the other thing that was really powerful out of that, he said that the one thing that we always had is we could decide how we responded, no matter what pain was inflicted on us, we decided how we were going to respond. We even had humor in, in the concentration camps. And the one thing he said that no one could ever take away from you is how you choose to respond to something. It's, and he learned the skills to respond to any situation. So that was like, wow, okay, this is this guy's journey. You know, one in 27 people survived. Another book that was gifted to me was uh, The Happiness Advantage. Sean Acher, are you familiar with that book by chance? I should get royalties, by the way, for this guy's book. I think I'm so <laughs> If Sean, if you're watching this, I don't know what kind of reach you have. You, you get, I've sold thousands of this guy's books. Come after him, man. <laughs> when, I, when, when, I, when I read the book, and I'm not, this, I'm not that guy. I bought two for my daughters and three for my assistant coaches. Yeah. I go, read, you got to read this book. Amazing. I read it freaking three times. And when I went to Uruguay and Argentina, I was going to read the fourth. I left in my trunk. You should be this guy's hype man. I should be his hype man. Yeah, yeah. I should be his hype man. Yeah, yeah. I got to go out on stage beforehand. I, he would, he rocks it. But he, the book had changed my lens. It changed my lens and refreshed my memory. And, and what it does is he talks about these things that, that you could control, things you can and can't control. And you know that. It's, so how my life has shifted and how this becomes you know, more applicable and stickier is that grateful, being grateful and thankful. Just processing getting up. So I mentioned I haven't had a bad day in eight years. I don't exaggerate. Why? Because every day when I wake up, the first thing I do every morning, the very first thing is when I wake up, I don't look at Steve Jobs' iPhone, all right, like most people do. I, I'm spiritual. I thank the Lord for another day on this planet. Like I mentioned earlier, eight times I've survived death. I'm very grateful for that. But I'm thankful for being alive. And then for the air that I breathe, because oxygen gives us life. The last thing we're going to have is breath. So I'm thankful for that right away, right away. And then I do meditation. I thank you for the air that fills my lungs three times, my heart, my veins, and my brain. And then immediately I think of three or more situations or people the day before that I met or conversations I had that I'm most grateful for. The day before. So when I woke up this morning, I thought about JM and Jess, his girlfriend, who I crashed at their pad in Brooklyn last night. And what a gift it was to see them have this rich conversation last night. The second part was having dinner with JM, and he's someone that I had mentored. He graduated a few years ago, and how we connected in our life. And the third was my daughter's uh, 25th birthday. And what a wonderful experience and day that she had, right? So what kind of a day do, do I, am I having today? A great day. A great day. Yeah. A great day. I only have great days because I choose to have great days. I don't let the weather, my health, money or lack of 
or something that someone said to me or beeped at me coming over here, decide for me. I'm talking to JM on the on the car, uh, on the speaker over here, coming here, this guy's beeping in the terminal corner. And I go, oh, man, I feel so bad for that guy that he's in such a rush. And JM starts laughing. He goes, that's you, TJ. He goes, other people be pissed off at that person. But you're not. I go, no, because that person is trying to get somewhere. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So what we put in our brain sticks, if we put in gratitude, happiness, confidence, it sticks. You put in fear, anxiety, anger, it sticks. Like Mike. Remember Mike's name. I want to remember his name because that's important. You follow me? Because people are important. When you decide and recognize and realize that you can control things and we have that power, we don't need someone else to do it. The world opens to you, man. It opens to you. So I did this with my students. So in my journey, all right? So I taught a philosophy of coaching class at, at LIU. It was Division One. almost 95% were Division One athletes. I had three future Olympic medalists, high-end type A athletes, all right? Really serious athletes. So I start every class with a grateful list. Come in class, tell me you're grateful for. Everybody just goes around, right? So I did that, and then the end of the semester, people were happier. I said, I'm gonna make them do a grateful list. So next semester, I said, okay, 25% of your grade is every day, write three things you're grateful for and three goals of the day. An academic goal, I have to study extra. An athletic goal, I'm gonna work out 10,000 steps. And a social goal. How are you gonna make the world a better place? Connecting with someone, picking up 10 pieces of paper, opening the door, finding a stranger, making a phone call to someone, thanking them for their mentorship or what they did. How are you gonna make it a little bit better? And how are you gonna be intentional? So I graded my students, so they, they were doing it. Did over three years, and I did a survey at the end of the year. Are you ready for this? 121 students. The class was very popular. We had an independent study. They asked me to teach a second one. I didn't have the time to do that. So I did an independent study that only met three times a semester. The class met every week. Are you, are you tracking? Mm -hmm. So I said, I did this over three years. Happiness, where are you on the spectrum? Beginning at the end. Are you any happier after doing the survey, the journal, and the work? I'm thinking if 25% are happier, I'm down, right? 50%, are you ready? 83% of stressed Division I athletes were happier in freaking May than they were in January from doing this every day. Yeah. All right, I was, I was like, are you kidding me, man? Yeah. Okay, I'm about to push hard. I'm with you 100%. I love the concept. I love the idea. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I'm not a person of faith. I, I'm not critical of people who are people of faith. Um, people, uh, I think one of the, the things that religion can do in its best uh, format is give people a structure to hang the challenges of life on and make sense of and, and have like a more of a hopeful, positive, like uh, community service based outcome mm -hmm. in its best format. However, the challenges of being a human being on the planet is that everyone is different. Some people have strange paths that go down, they get in positions of power, that power then becomes corrupt. Organization systems become more corrupt. I think engaging in religion um, is a challenging task to keep it in that form of just like, how do you get the real good stuff out of it? And mm -hmm. I think it's a, uh, again, I'm not a person of faith at all. And mm -hmm. I, um, I'm not critical of other people at all about doing it, but I also understand why so many people 
Bartmanko. That's sure. not for me. The concepts that you're talking about, um, certainly while not not religious, I'd say are some kind of like the, the altruistic and like positive thinking and healthy thinking aspects that one would have one would or could get from like religion back either in, or in the olden days or if you're exposed to like the right kinds of mentors. But again, you're in a space where you're doing it in a class. So in one situation, you're meeting with people three times in a semester. The other one, you're meeting with people once a week. It's part of their grade. It's part of your mentorship and your teaching and being with them. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I can, I have, I'm surprised, like 83% doesn't surprise me. I think that's amazing that, that people are happy. It does or it doesn't surprise you? It doesn't surprise oh, okay. me. Okay. And it doesn't surprise me because it's any discipline that you're a part of that has, like if you're in a discipline of hitting yourself in the head with a shoe every day, it's going to, that's a type of discipline and it's going to have an outcome and it will be negative. But if you are in the discipline of all the things you just talked about and you're doing it and there's a structure that supports that, it's absolutely going to have positive outcomes. Let's get out of that because you're talking about people who are privileged enough to be going to you know university. You're talking Division One athletes. Mm-hmm. We're talking about they have access to someone who is a really experienced mentor who's learning along with them and figuring it out. Let's bring it back to just your average person or even people who are living in a really challenging scenarios, like mm-hmm. where they um, they don't have the ability, uh, either for monetary reasons or life reasons, to access someone like that, or to be in that kind of really structured situation. How do we take the results that you're talking about and make it portable to other situations without just being well wishers? Well, I, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I, I don't. I don't have that. I, I don't have that answer for you right now. I wish I could say I had that answer. How we can take that and scale it to the to the masses. Um, my my response right now would be to to try to figure out how to do that. I don't have that mechanism. One of my own personal challenges is scaling things in general. Is I when I work with groups, it works for that group, and I can help that group go. But how do I? scale me right now what's starting to happen in my universe is i'm becoming scaled with a book and being hired to speak in different places so this is happening now as a result of the work i do i i don't have that answer i'm gonna you know be quite honest with you, you know, I'm not, give you an example yeah, yeah yeah so i'm not going to tell you oh this is how we we, we do it so Man, I, I don't have that answer. yeah I, don't have the answer. I, I have some thoughts but you but go ahead continue okay 12 stuff 12-step work, like AA, and mm-hmm. any mm-hmm. of those things. That to me is like an infinitely scalable idea because it's very simple, it's very practical. People are, it's accessible by most people from mm-hmm. all sorts of different backgrounds and identities. And if done correctly, which it in many cases is, and in some cases where it's not, 12-step is an ultimately accessible way mm. of engaging in something that can improve your life. Mm. And it's very simple, it's very, yes. it's very done, well done. However, you know, something that kind of, and someone listen to this, and for the uh, people who are uninformed, because I, I, I'm just as a sticking point, when people are like, oh, it's it's a religious thing, it's like, no, it's it's not. There are, and it initially had that aspect to it, but mm-hmm. like, no, it's like, there's all sorts of different groups. There's Buddhist groups. There's all sorts of different approaches to it, different identities. Like, I believe it's one of the most interesting, ultimately scalable ways of looking at a, what I'd say is like, self-empowerment around mm-hmm. healthy choices and mm-hmm. healthy living that costs nothing. Anyone can go mm-hmm. um, and it can be done anywhere. That's one of the few ones where I think it's like, oh, that was well done. Like totally captured 
like lightning in a bottle. How do we take other things and make it scalable like that that are valuable? Well, why can't we do the same thing with vision training for life? Why can't we do that? Why can't that happen? So when I, I for my, my journeys, I say I'm spiritual. I also, every morning I read about Buddha. I have 1,325 Buddhist ways to be happy. So I don't talk about the universe. So when I, took, when I do space and workshops, I said, for me, I'm spiritual. The universe, be grateful. Don't, you don't have to attach a specific religion to the gratefulness, you follow me? It's just, that's my way of finding a part of gratitude. But why, why can't vision training, why can't we take these same ideas and make it scalable to, to everyone? I don't know, we, that's absolutely possible. Yeah, there, you don't need to be going to a college and paying these fees or you know, hiring me to, to do a workshop for you or, yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly those, these ideas will be in the, in the book, but there's no reason why that can't be done in that, in that, in that capacity. I'm going to give you kind of a, a sideways idea that I have that I think go. might apply. Go, go. Um, so there's this record label called Trust Records. Um, and a shout out to Joe and Matt. Uh, Joe's a friend of the show. Um, their record label essentially is about finding old punk records that are iconic, where like these records came out in the 70s or the 80s or even the 90s, when the people who wrote these records were like 18. And they were basically taken advantage of by these terrible record contracts. And like, like we're talking about like records by like a band called like um, Bad Brains. Okay. Have you ever heard of Bad Brains? I have not. I have not. They're like, and there's a bit of a debate here of whether or not they were the first, because there's also a, a great band called Death, uh, who, who might have been, it depends what side of the coin you flip. But okay. let's just say Death was like the first African-American punk band. Okay. And Bad Brains would be the first African-American hardcore band. And they were uh, originally from DC, then they were based in New York, and like their their influence is like phenomenal. Wow. However, bad record deal after bad record deal after bad record deal of this like ultra iconic band. Trust Records essentially they started this record label to buy old back catalogs, repackage, basically like repurpose these iconic records, make them uh, accessible to everybody while also respecting the history. But their whole end game is we're going to get as many records as we can within this time frame, and then we're going to give it to a museum. And we're going to give this collection of music that we have basically put back into the world that's also governed by the artist where they have fair deals and all the right things are happening. And then we're going to give it to a museum because we're finite. We're not infinite people. Like the scene hopefully could be finite. But the whole idea is that to me is something that's scalable. Like punk and hardcore has changed my life for sure, changed the lives of many people. And it's one of the things that does that. But it also could be this little thing like, it used to be like, oh, you're one of a thousand people who got that record. And maybe you have a tape of a tape of a tape of that record. Now it's taking that record where there's a thousand made, it's bringing it up to scale, making it accessible to everyone, making sure the artists get paid with the idea that this is gonna go to the Smithsonian. I think around ways of thinking, um, philosophies, uh, and, and I think someone who comes up with a great way of coaching or mentoring should make money off of that. Like, I think it's great that you're doing that. I mean, it's what I do. I have my own philosophy and the way that I work. And you're a finite being. And what you're talking about can help so many people. So using trust records, sorry, there's a long way of getting to this. Using trust records is kind of like, that's oh, an interesting idea of what they're doing. Is your book that you're doing kind of like a step in that direction? Yes. Okay, so tell us about the book. It's it's a giant step in that direction. 
Yeah, that, that's the stickiness. The book is about the stickiness. So the, the book is, is, is dropping actually today. Synchronicity, the, the power of synchronicity. It's, uh, the first draft is, is dropping today. And what's the name of the book? The book is Eyes Up. That's the title of the book. Uh, it'll be in Amazon pre-orders in the next several months. Uh, Matt Holt Publishing Company. Matt Holt is a publisher, incredible dude that somehow the universe put us all together. He uh, was a publisher for 27 years, published 10,000 titles, left this company, said, I want to do my own thing. I want to publish books that I care about, like things that I care about. Yeah. So my co-author was agent. He's her favorite agent. She gave him the book. Right away, he's like, I want to meet this dude. And I'm like, what, you know, why do you want it? Why are you interested in the book? He goes, well, Mike, I want something that's different, unique. I want the person to be an innovator. I want it to be something that's going to fit a space in learning that we haven't, we haven't fit. And I want it to help everyone. And I want the person to be likable, someone that I like. Like, okay, so this, we have this. And he goes, you check all these boxes. So we started writing, my co-author and I started writing the book. The book is essentially how to shift your perspective, subtle shifts in perspective, discovering your full potential and making meaningful connections. And I take seven of the lessons of leadership and I do a deep dive through the lens of a soccer coach. So the metaphor is a soccer coach's story. So I talk about vision training soccer, how it's an outlier and vision training for life, how the two marry back and forth. Vision training soccer for those that are not soccer people is, is a super outlier. And the way I describe it, you played as, as a kid, but let's say you knew nothing about soccer. I would, I would describe it. You know, do you like soup? I love soup. Okay, what's your favorite soup? It's a little bland, but I love tomato soup. Okay, I love tomato soup too. Um, croutons or no croutons? Depends on the day. Okay. So I'm not a crouton guy, but yeah, depends if you need a little bit more. So imagine that you and the whole world eats their soup with a fork and it's normal. And I say, Aram, try the spoon. And you're like, no, what's the matter with you? It's about the fork. We all use the fork. I go, just try it. You know, so part of folks are going to go, you know, we talk about growth fixed mindset. They're going to go, no, I'm not going to do that. You're stupid. You're weird, whatever. Other people, if you just try it once, they try it with a spoon and they're like, Are you, you must be kidding me. The spoon that was right here is freaking better than the fork. Yeah. That's vision training soccer. Okay. It's, a, it's like it changes your performance. Okay. Like I mentioned, you asked me about how different mentorship. <laughs> I talk to kids in 10 minutes on the field, yeah. and all I tell them is take five looks every 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. Before you go on the soccer field, build the habit of taking five looks every 10 seconds mm -hmm. and see what happens, see the possibilities. Your performance can get 10 to 20% better just by doing that. How's that for great coaching? It's nothing. It's just giving people the ideas of what? Looking and scanning, gathering information. It's that, that simple. Yeah. You'll get 10 to 20% better. I did this in California, LA, two years ago. Kid sends me a video email four months later. I'm on the Guam national team now. I go, that's amazing. He goes, I used your thing. I scored seven goals in Las Vegas in the tournament. He showed me video of him looking by giving 10 minutes of information. Um, I, I think that the best coaching 
some of the best coaching is just very, very simple things. Instead of using the four keys of spoon, people call crap. Why didn't I think of that? Um, so that taking five looks in ten, every 10 seconds is like a great, very, very executable, really simple idea that's easy to remember that would, like I can understand why that would really dramatically uh, improve your playing. So stuff like that until you get to more complex problems. So that's what more complex coaching is. Yep. But simplicity of coaching, simplicity of ideas so they're executable and it gets sticky, which is like my main thing is like, how do you be sticky and be, um, how do you be of service to someone more than just giving them a good experience in a conversation is ultra important to me. So I love that. Now, the book, tell us more about the book because I find your ideas like so compelling and so interesting that I want more people to be able to have access to them. And there's only one you where this book then gives them more access. So tell us more about the book. So the, the book, I do a deep dive in seven qualities from my lens of being transformative. Mm -hmm. I mentioned to you about the workshop I just did. And I, I asked at the beginning of the workshop, what are the qualities of a transformative leader? And I shared that with you. There was vulnerability, grit. When I did a workshop in Oregon about four years ago, they came up with 37 different you know, qualities of transformative leaders. So I do a deep dive in seven. I start with integrity and I end with confidence and belief. And I talk about um, positivity, gratitude, selflessness, innovation, perception, about believing in ideas and growing the ideas, even as other people don't listen to you or don't believe in it. I talk about um, the Fosbury flop. Are you familiar with Dick Fosbury? No. Are you familiar with high jumping? Yeah. High jump. Do you know how they high jump, which way they high jump when they jump over? They they go up and kind of like their stomachs are above the bar. Is that correct? Like they twist over like that. And they twist over and off. You know, they twist over backwards. Oh, they twist over backwards, not, not okay. frontward. So their stomach would be facing up from the bar. Yes. The bar would be would be there. Correct. Back. And you, you've probably seen that, right? When yeah. you say, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's called the Fosbury flop. Okay. So everybody, that's how they jump over. Kind of. Yeah. Bizarre, isn't it? To jump over backwards, right? You'd think you jump over a straddle, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like just the way that I just tried to explain it initially was how I thought that they would go stomach down, but it's back. It's back down. Right. Yeah. So in the 60s, everybody jumped the way you thought. Okay. Okay. And there was this 15-year-old kid in Oregon named Dick Fosbury who loved to jump. He was a high jumper, was a high school high jumper. And the minimum for to make the state tournament was five feet. And he couldn't do it. He was like 4'11", whatever, you know, finally, you know, he's in a meet and he can't do it. And he's like, damn, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it a little different way. I'm gonna go backwards. I'm gonna like try, cause it doesn't work. Cleared it easy. Cleared 5'10", that meet, okay? Senior year, Oregon High School, state champion going backwards. Nobody in the country is doing it. He's the only guy doing it backwards. Right. Goes to Oregon State on a scholarship. What do you think the coach tries to do when he shows up at Oregon State? To do it the other way. Yeah. yeah. Why? Uh, probably because he was like, this is the way that it's done, and you can still be successful if you do it this old way. Yeah. Um, what you're doing is like some kind of weird habit that you've developed, which is fine, but if you do it this way, I'm going to help you be successful. Can imagine if we innovated like that? Well, that's yeah. really dumb the way you do that. Imagine if we took products and ideas and said that to people. What we, but we do do that. We do do that. Yeah. We, maybe less now. Maybe less now, but we but we still do do that. Yeah, totally. Okay. We still do do that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what happened to his performance? When it he, went down. It went down. Yeah. So coach is like, okay, good. Go back to your way. Right? Go to the new way. In 1968. Well, I'm just going to pause on that. Yeah. So, but the coach did say go back to your way. Go back. Eventually the coach said. So the student 
taught the teacher. Student taught the teacher. Okay. Student eventually student taught the teacher. Right. Mentorship. When I talk about mentorship, is bottom up as well. And as a mentor, as a leader, and I mentioned about I'm a leader and a follower, a listener, life learner, right? So as we follow, we listen, learn. So eventually, and we make mistakes always, and admitting that, yeah, let me learn from this. So in 1968, Dick Fosbury jumped seven feet, four and a quarter inches, won the gold medal at the 68 Olympics in Mexico City. Now everyone in the world jumps the way Dick Fosbury jumps, mm -hmm. the way a 15-year-old boy decided to jump, mm -hmm. okay, because he was innovative. So I start with that, mm -hmm. and I talk about that, and about innovation, and about believing in ideas, mm -hmm. and making sure that you allow ideas to emerge and grow. Mm -hmm. All right, so you've got this book coming out. Um, the idea of scale, scalable ideas. Can I give you a little bit of my philosophy? I would, I'm, I'm yes. <laughs> so like, in the, in the idea of keeping things simple, um, I can't stand generalities when people talk about stuff. And I shouldn't say I can't stand. I, I can totally stand it, but you I'm, need more. You need you, yeah. I'm compelled to ask questions. Correct, correct. To push on things. And the way that I started really honing my coaching practice was I was asked to speak at this conference of HR leaders in Canada, uh, in within a certain industry, and the people there were wonderful, super smart. Amazing people. So this is not a critique of anyone there because they were the best, the best. And they, they were totally willing to like play along with me. Um, they wanted me to speak about authentic leadership. And they said, hey, and, and you know, and I would imagine this is the same in athletic coaching as it is, as you would see uh, in your, now in your cult consulting work, there's trends mm -hmm. and there's thought trends mm -hmm. right? and, and training trends. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those trends are really good and useful and meaningful. And sometimes they're, they come from a good place, but they're largely meaningless. And so authentic leadership is one of these ones. And I was asked to speak about authentic leadership and usually I would have said no, but the person who asked me was someone that I really liked. And I was like, okay, but you have to let me do it my way. And she was like, absolutely, whatever you want to do. And so basically I was like, okay, I'm not going to train it. Or I'm not going to give a speech today about authentic leadership because I don't know what that is. And so all these people are expecting me to talk about it. And I said, instead, I want you to tell me what authentic leadership is. So I'm going to split you into groups, and I'm going to give you three sentences, and I want you to define authentic leadership for me. What, is it, what does it mean? And nobody in the room could do it. Really? Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it oh my means. goodness. And people are like, well, being yourself. And I was like, okay, so what happens if yourself is mean and a jerk? What if, you're, what if you grew up in like a yelling family? I grew up in a yelling family, right? So it's like... You know, you love each other, but you get your point across by yelling. Yes, very, like, very familiar with that. What if you grew up in a yelling family? So you're telling me to be myself. I grew up in a yelling family. Okay, well, be a better version of that. Okay, is that authentic? Mm -hmm. And so we had this super cool conversation where I was like, authentic leadership is like, I think it's super well-intentioned, but it means near nothing, depending on who it is, what the situation is. And also, like authenticity, if we think of people who have been who who were part of traditionally marginalized groups, it's like, what are you saying? Because traditionally marginalized groups have have often been um, uh, prevented from being authentic. Where it's like, hey, you should come into the work world and be this way, not the way that you you would exist within your own communities. So it's like it is a challenging subject, but it doesn't mean it's not a good subject. Mm -hmm. It's imprecise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in that conversation. And this is not like the story of me like getting one up. I was like genuinely interested. What are these great minds in business think? 
and we had this awesome like hour conversation and broke it down. And from there, I actually developed a lot of my coaching philosophy. Um, but I will tell you where I, I spend a lot of time talking about it's aspirational and reduction. Mm -hmm. So you know when people talk about company culture, mm -hmm. and people use this um, line that drives me totally crazy. And when they say it, it comes from such a good place. It's like culture it's strategy for lunch and it's like oh it's so powerful it's like yeah but what does even one of those words mean and as soon as you ask three questions people are like "Ooh, maybe how do i know they're well-intentioned things but mean relatively little and most i'd say a lot of people who are in any kind of job where people start talking about culture they start rolling their eyes instantly like oh my god because when you talk about culture you're well-intentioned but when you're talking about things need to be executed on mm -hmm. we're losing money um, we've got a forecast we're trying to hit, uh, you know, like our product is late, all that goes right goes out the window. window. So this is the way that I talk about it. Culture is aspirational. You pick a culture and you don't just talk about like, um, you know, we're going to be kind. Well, what does kindness actually look like? Give me some examples, like really tangible examples where people have operated in a kind way within this business. And I want you to be specific. Mm -hmm. Okay. What were the skills associated with that? So I break it all the way down. Like, what are the skills we need to train everyone on? If we're going to say, I want this to be a cultural tenant of the company, I want examples where that's happened, then what were the skills associated with that? Like listening is an example, or being able to like uh, manage your physical presence. If you're upset, but you want to be kind, and you're like, how do you relax yourself? Beautiful, beautiful. Let's get into those skills specifically. Then we bring it back to, um, the tenant, like this is what I want it to be. The whole thing, I believe, with a lot of change is what is the asp aspirational state? And then how do we build the skills so that we can be that more often than we're not? Mm -hmm. So I think someone has a successful company culture is if they're living those tenants 70% of the time while respecting 30% of the time, mm -hmm. a lot of wild stuff is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But so you're being successful. It doesn't mean you're being a plus level successful because those would be higher percentages but like the better you get at it mm -hmm. you're you're still going to be um the, the better you get at executing on your aspiration the more successful the culture is going to be but to kind of be like from this point forward we're a kind company or we're an inclusive company it's like really you think that you're never going to hire someone that doesn't have some kind of sexist or racist thinking of course you will mm -hmm. like rather than just pretending that that's not true why don't you say there probably will be a time when some people kind of get into the company where they have ideas that we find wrong, that we disagree with. Mm -hmm. So how do we as a company aspire to be this way while realizing the practicality of what could happen? So the aspirational side is there. The reduction side is the other. So from the addiction uh, mindset, if I'm working with someone who lives with addiction, it's impractical to say, hey, you've met me one time. You're never going to do drugs again. No, that's like crazy. And maybe someone wants to do drugs. Maybe they like doing drugs. And they're more, they're just looking for moderation. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to figure out how to balance their life. Like, a therapist shouldn't go in into a situation and be like, well, I'm going to tell you what to do. So I would operate always on this idea of um, you want to have a reduction in frequency, duration, and impact. And sometimes you could just be working one of those or all three of those in conjunction. If you're working in all three in conjunction, you'd be saying, whatever it is, is going to happen less often. Mm -hmm. But when it happens, you start thinking about duration. So when it does happen, inevitably, I just want it to happen for a shorter period of time. I want to catch it quicker. Mm -hmm. 
And when that happens, I want that shorter, ever increasingly shorter period of time when it does happen, but the impact that it has on myself and others to be less. Mm. So if you're thinking about something, and I'm just using culture as an example, mm-hmm. where we're aspiring to be something more often than we're not. Yeah. And let's say we are successful 70% of the time, mm-hmm. but 30% of the time, we want that that percentage to go down more and more because mm. it's happening less often. But mm. when it does happen, as it inevitably will, people have life stuff that comes up. Sometimes people get into arguments at work and yell at each other. Sure. Sometimes to- cultures uh, become a little toxic or a lot toxic. But if you're good at this, it could just be, okay, it is happening. Mm. How do we shorten the time? Do we have the skills, abilities, like I everything tied in to okay. make it shorter? And then because we're better at those things, by nature, the impact should be less. But are we also skilled at making sure the impact is less? Are we checking in with people? Are we having the right conversations? Being in this space where humans are humans, life is difficult. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about a really challenging uh, situation eight years ago. I went through something very similar, like just a few years ago. It just really messes with you. How do I aspire to be the best boss that I can be in this challenging situation while recognizing mm-hmm. I'm going to have crappy behaviors? And just making them show up less often when they're happening for them to be shorter and then the impact to be less. So that's like the philosophy that I play in. But I think it, it, it's adjoining to, to what you're talking about, I think. Very, very much so. Very, very much so. And, re- and recognize, I love, I love the 70-30, how, how, you, how you put that. I'm thinking about my own team. I'm thinking about work culture. And it's also forgiving, you know, being able to forgive people, mm-hmm. right? Saying that we're imperfect. Right. This is what we're striving for, and this is what we want to be at. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that we get to it on my team and in, in the culture we build is through our ethos, right? company ethos. So we have we have a team ethos that we. How do we live those ethos? How do we strive to? I'll use that seventy percent number or, or higher. Mm-hmm. So every before every practice, we do a shout out. Before every practice, we circle up. We do a gratitude, um, and we. Let's say, for example, before we do anything, warming up. Aram, thank you for helping me with my bio last night. I appreciate that. Mike, thanks for driving to Walmart. I needed to, to buy some, get some shaving cream. So just shout out. So right away, our gratitude, our thankfulness, appreciation is up. All right? And then we, our team has identified four ethos. Community, heart, right, which is very important, vision, and integrity. That's our team ethos from reading, from doing book readings. Like this is what we believe in these four things. So we take one, let's say integrity, for example, and integrity is striving to do the right thing. You follow me? Not being perfect, but striving to do the right thing. And beginning of the week, I select four players or manager, and I tell them, okay, around Monday, you're gonna have integrity. Tuesday, Serena, our manager, Wednesday and Friday. After we do the shout out around you step in, I want you to share an example of integrity that we can learn from. So how we're living our ethos, you follow me? So we do it on Monday and nobody knows, only you know that you're gonna step up and you're gonna talk about it. Or you could read a passage or use an example. Dino, after training the other day, we all left, Dino was on the other side picking up the trash and putting stuff away because we left this space and we wanna make sure the space looks good because this is our home, right? So how do we intentionally live that and strive to do the right thing? So that's an example I'm thinking, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
why like while this stuff is so compelling to me is like so you know i bring a lot of things back to the punk scene where there's a lot of like important ideas and, i mean punk hardcore changed my life it's the reason why i'm vegan um my parents were very liberal uh, already but like punk like really opened my eyes to a lot more liberal thinking and, and i don't want to say right or wrong everyone's different it's just the way i choose to sure, live my life sure. um but one of the things that i think about punk has, has always been interesting is like really really important ideas with like kind of the group assumption we all play on the same playing field like we're all good people you know we've, we're part of the scene so we're all good people and then of course people are people right mm -hmm. and you know it's just like there's been times where i've acted like totally off of my morals uh, there's been times where my friends have and sometimes in, in truly disastrous ways sure um there's like you know there's that kind of whisper network is like well if we're all kind of like this why are those people acting like that and one of the things i've always thought about <laughs> that has been so useful to me is that it like taught me two things it taught me to like really question things and be in that space but it also taught me to ignore when ignore this kind of like uh, social contract that we all have where it's like everyone's kind of just we're saying this it caused me to turn a blind eye to mine and others behaviors that were off of what our, our kind of our agreed upon shared values were mm. and something i realized over time it's like when you're part of a really big group of people like punk and hardcore is like worldwide, you can't just assume everyone's going to follow the same rules, including yourself, right? You're going to start having blind spots. As I've gotten older, I have become fascinated with how do you engage your, what I refer to as your, like your higher self rather than your lesser self, mm -hmm. but like don't rely on other people to do it. So, so much of what you're talking about is really structured and relies on kind of group agreements and dynamics. And I, I love that. I think that's amazing. How do I maintain my higher self more often than not with 0% governance and support from, from other people? And it's changed the way that I think because I used to be like kind of over-reliant and I'm certainly not suggesting this around anything. I'm just talking about- Yeah, yeah, go, 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 yeah, go. Over-reliant on group thinking like we are like this and now I'm like I am like this and if someone criticizes me I'm going to try and manage it in a, in, a, in a way that's true to me without getting aggressive or defensive but also like acknowledging the hurt and, mm -hmm. and doing this mm -hmm. it is totally reformatted my life where I'm like way more focused on my partner Monica I'm focused on my kids I'm focused on my, my family very very tight group and it, it's like, I kind of view myself as like, I'm no longer this or that. Like, I don't want to find out as being like part of this group or that group. The only group I'm a part of is my family mm -hmm. and my friends. And it's very, very tight. And I'm honored and love walking in a lot of different groups, but those groups don't govern my thinking on anything anymore. And I didn't grow up with strong mentors. I didn't, I grew up in sports, but I was terrible at sports. So like I didn't, I was drawn to individual sports like skateboarding because I, when I was in team sports, I never had strong coaches that were like, you suck, let me give you some attention. So something like punk provided that structure for me in a good way. Yes. Until it didn't anymore. And then I had to kind of start relying on myself more. Mm. Um, long story to say, long story short to say that what you've created with people and the philosophy you have keeps telling me how important early and then also like mentors and coaches are throughout life because that's something i didn't have so i had to go to outside sources for it and eventually i had to bring it in more on myself um what are your thoughts on can people develop that discipline without a structure around them yes you can 
You can't. I, yesterday, Thursday, I did a workshop and I asked that question, who believed in you, who saw something in you, and you had that answer, all right? The first workshop I ever did was uh, for a global studies class. My, one of my biggest mentors who asked me to speak, that's how I get into this space of leadership. Um, and uh, Norman Schwartz, I had gone to a BuzzFeed speaker at LIU Brooklyn who was talking about career development and I was a fly on the wall, sat in the back, I was really curious. He was amazing, young guy in his 30s, curly hair, and he, was, he was phenomenal. And he's basically helping students in their, in their journey. How do they you know, get a first job? How do, how do they find a job? And at the very beginning, he says, uh, by the way, if there's anybody has any suggestions or anything, just let me know. Um, I'm like, I've never heard anybody open up a talk. Like, if you have something to tell me that's better, go ahead and do it. How cool is that? Talk about like an open dude, right? Anyway, he was great. He nailed it. He was fantastic. So at the end, uh, there were some questions I raised my hand. I said, I loved your presentation. I got a lot out of it. I know the students can be useful. Can I make a suggestion for you? Right? And he turns and looks at me and says, yeah. I said, your ninth slide, you suggest, you said that when you work for a big corporate, make sure you get to know the administrative assistant to the CEO because he or she is the gatekeeper. So get to know they have the calendar, right? So make sure you network with them. I said, can I suggest you replace the word connect with network? Because when you connect with people, it's much more of a meaningful conversation. When you network, hey, what are you going to do for me? All right? What are you going to do for me, all right? Everybody clapped. Everybody turned and clapped. I'm like, oh, crap. what? He goes, I'm going to change it right now. He goes and changes it like on the spot. I'm like, that's wild. Norman, sitting there, three-piece suit professor, said, could you come speak to my global studies class? I go, well, he goes, anything you want to talk about? That's how I actually got into the leadership space. First workshop I do. TJ has all these great ideas, mentorship, all this, right? Who believed in you? Write it down. People writing. I come across this woman evening class, I find out she's got a couple children, part-time jobs, she's been going to school for years. She's in tears. I walk over, I'm like, what the heck? I just, I, my workshop is not to have people cry. And I lean over, I say, are you okay? What's, what can I help you? She says, I realize I never had a mentor. Nobody ever saw anything in me. So you've just discovered the biggest secret. You believe in yourself. The power of us believing in yourself. Again, we have these resources that we're talking about, but the fact that you believe in yourself and you're working this part-time job, I mean, part-time going to school, while your children see that, you're mentoring for your kids. You're, your kids are seeing what you're doing. You follow me? And that, those and it was like, I didn't have, I just thought about that, you follow me? The tears turned into a smile. Tears turned into a smile. And I just had asked the same question on Thursday, and I had a guy raise his hand. He said the same thing. I didn't have a mentor, but I could see myself. Do you follow me? I don't know if I answered that question for you. It did. Uh, or my, my lens of, of helping folks uh, in that space. So it did, and, and you hit right where I was, I was hoping to get into. Believe in yourself, right? What a, what a, what a good piece of advice, but also just like, I don't want to say toxically positive, but it's just like, it's a generalist's playground. Right. And I didn't grow up with a mentor. Both my parents are lovely people. Um, that when I was quite young, there was a lot of difficulty in the home. There's like mental health stuff, like yeah, lots of challenges. My mom kind of assumed the, um, the breadwinner role, which in the early 80s was quite unusual. My parents were already um, from a, uh, 
a mixed marriage, a culturally mixed marriage, which was like highly frowned upon at the time. So, and we were isolated. We were in Abra, Alberta. We didn't have any family around us. So like my parents were just basically trying to survive and they did a great job. We never did, we never didn't have anything or any of that. But what I didn't have was I didn't have like a, a strong mentor or a coach, neither did my sister. And we did sports and we did things, but we were just like weird kids. Like we had like weird exotic names, you know, we weren't the normal kind of Calgary kids. And like, you know, we were acting out. We didn't, our parents were from different cultures, so they had different ways of engaging. Like we were just kids right on the fringes, right from the start and kind of grew up that way. And why I was so drawn to subculture, especially skateboarding was like, you don't need anyone else to do this. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have teammates that I was buddies with because I sucked at sports skateboarding which i was a capable skateboarder at best that was the if you skateboard you're friends with every other skateboarder because you're part of this little culture that nobody else and it was like yeah and then like punk that led to that and then it was like all the other kids who weren't good at sports were all kind of fringe one of the things that i I realized over time that so much punk and hardcore the songs are about believing in yourself but it's almost like right but how Mm. So when I think of people who haven't had great coaches or haven't had great mentors or, or, or who didn't have them all or had them, but they sucked because you talked about that earlier. They like, sucked. Yeah. You know, there's some really poor mentors that turn, yeah, toxic. So, first of all, is there a difference? Because like, we'll, we'll back in this a little bit more. Is there a difference in your mind between a coach and a mentor? Are they the same exact thing or are they different? Great question. No one's ever asked me that question. Uh, my gut reaction, mentor I see in a higher place, a coach... I think of coaches and there's different categories. If you're a mentor, I, I feel that if you're going to call yourself a mentor, you're already recognizing the importance and the value of who you are. I mean, that's just my, my, my knee-jerk comment to that. I never, nobody's ever asked me that. That's a great question. Um, can I give you my take on it? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I've never, that's beautiful. Go. Um, a mentor is altruistic, mm-hmm. but it's someone who has no accountability to your success. Mm-hmm. Like, they care. Like, they, they want to help because they want to mentor. And in the end, it's they're not accountable to whether or not you do well. So mentors can be incredible because they're all true. They they want to help and they give you great sources of knowledge. But at the end of the day, you can't go to them and be like, Hey, I like, you know, I'm not where I want to be. And they'll just be like, Hey, you didn't take my advice. A coach is someone who they're not necessarily altruistic because it's actually their job. Mm -hmm. They are there as, as a job and they actually have a much higher amount of accountability. I expect coaches to be highly skilled and have like a philosophy that they operate on, whether they take that philosophy from someone else or it's their own or it's a combination. But a coach is someone who there is not necessarily a financial incentive, but there's an agreement. I am a coach. Mm-hmm. It's part of my contract to do this. So with that, I am going to bring the skills that make me uh, like proper to do this. Like I should have the skills to do it. And I'm accountable to your outcome. So by all rights, if you're not successful, then something's gone wrong in our in our work together. Where a mentor might have great wisdom, knowledge, and they could have a system with which they do it with, but ultimately they're not accountable. I think both are totally super important uh, to um, for people's growth. But it's about what do you need at any time in your life to help you mm-hmm. get out of it what you're hoping to get. Mm-hmm. I love that definition. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on that one. Please. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, the, and the coaching piece is such a critical part because there's the toxic ones and there's the ones that are transformative, the ones that realize that all their, the actions they have 
will can direct you in your in your journey. Uh, do you mind if I give one more example of that? No, go. No, no. That's this is beautiful. Please. So I'm at a point in cadence in my business, uh, which I was telling you earlier before we started recording, where I'm like, oh, like I'm in a different place with the business now, and I'm like, I've got four different choices I can make. I'm not going to go to a coach for this. I I'm gone to someone who I look up as a business person who's actually a client of mine and said, would you mind mentoring me on what the next steps of my business are based on these four choices? And he was like, Hey, he's just a wonderful person. A great, great business leader. He, he's heading to a different part of his career now where he has a little bit more space for that. And he really understands what it means to like scale up and grow a business. And he was like, I'm so honored. And he was like, it was, he was like, I love your business. And in fact, I could tell you a bunch of different stuff. All right, you don't have a contract. <laughs> I'm not awesome. paying this person to do this. That's awesome. So if he gives me a bunch of advice and I don't take it, he's just going to be like, okay, that's fine. Like, it's a true mentorship here. And I'm like, oh, I'm really hungry for the knowledge that you have. I want your opinion. But I also am independent. I built my own business. I also want to be able to be like, that's great advice. And I might not take that or I might take a part of that because it's not a coaching engagement. Love it. And so I'm entering into what I, I believe will be a very meaningful and useful uh, mentorship with someone I deeply respect. However, I was that person's coach. And so that like you can, I'm, I'm following someone now that I was walking beside before. Um, I think mentors are super important. I just haven't had that in my, in my life and I, I'm eagerly seeking that out. So that's kind of how I define those two. But let's say you don't have that or, or you don't need it. You haven't found an opportunity or a need from it. How do you believe in yourself? Or anything else you want to speak on that coaching mentoring before we move off of it? How do you believe in yourself? I think ultimately you you have to you have to recognize that you you have value, mm-hmm. that you're valuable, that you're that you are important. Mm-hmm. You know, if you feel that you're not, you're not worthy, it's going to be difficult to believe in yourself, having having the worth of what you are, and you know. Finding that, finding that, what, what are you good at? What do you like to do? I am good at this. I feel good at this brings me joy, right? So st- I think that's, that's the starting point of believing in yourself is, yeah, I believe in, I like to teach people how to dance. I, I like to dance myself. What, whatever that is that you, that you feel that you're good at or that brings you purpose and meaning. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think that's the starting point. And then it's, it's doing. It's going. It's starting. Starting to do the work. It's starting to realize that you're gonna make mistakes. You're not necessarily gonna go up here. We talked, I think, maybe off camera that rhythm of life and rhythm of success is this way. I, I'm doing two businesses now. I'm doing consulting. It's going pretty well. I'm getting paid handsomely, which I couldn't believe. I had a fail fail business. I started importing non-alcoholic wine from Australia. 35 years ago, it made sense. It sounded good at the time. It was uh, the, the craze of uh, athleticism and I was undercapitalized. I lost money, it was not a good decision. So I could have said, oh man, I'm not good. I, now I can't, don't believe in myself, but I kept on going because I learned skills from that struggle, if you follow me. Yeah. So learning what you just described to me, which is that you know, you're a little bit different, you had names for yourselves, you didn't have the right coaches and leaders right? Growing up. So you went to a sport that was an individual sport, which is common, by the way, what you're experiencing. It's not uncommon. 
But through this experience, you found community, you found punk rock and hard rock, and that was a community of similar people, and you became good at it. You're, I, I would argue you're probably great at it. And through that experience of struggle, you discovered that I'm great at this, so there's other things that I could probably be great at. Let me try and expand my limits and my boundaries and step out and try things that are a little more challenging. Because if I don't do that, well, I'm really not going to grow. So that would be my, that's my response to that. Is there a difference between believing in yourself and feeling good about yourself? Is there a difference between believing in yourself and feeling good about yourself? I think, they're I think there's a lot of connection between the two. I think there's a lot of connection. When you believe in yourself, there's a, feel, there's a feeling with that. When you feel good about yourself, you could start believing, you could move you toward closer to believing. I think if you believe in yourself, the feeling part is already attached to that. Mm -hmm. If you feel good about yourself, then you could start believing more and more. Mm -hmm. That would be my response. But you view them as, as different things. I, not necessarily, not necessarily. I've never had that question as, they could be combined. Sure, please sure. I think you can fully believe in yourself and not feel good about yourself. So, okay, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, uh, so you're doing things that you're not feeling good about, but you're believing what you can do. Expand, please. So if you think of, um, I'll use like stand-up comedians. Mm. Someone, like stand-up comedians are, I think, some of the most compelling, interesting people. Because like, and I don't want to speak for all stand-up comedians, but I think pretty common in that world is a lot of depression. A lot of depression, health, yes. Very, very common. A lot of substance abuse. Yes. But the deep belief that they should get up on stage and lighten everybody's mood and like kind of get into difficult mm. conversations. Like stand-up comedians are a really interesting conversation because like it takes something to get up on stage by yourself with this material that you've just like hashed out and you could get eviscerated up there. But you believe in yourself enough to do it. And in fact, you believe in yourself enough that you do it again and again and again. Mm. You'll go around the country in these little clubs and you'll work your way up and you'll do these things. You'll take the hits while also being deeply sensitive, as most stand-up comics are. Mm. Have lots of like challenges, self-doubt, all of these things. Like feel bad about yourself. And self-doubt is interesting because you can doubt. You can doubt yourself, but that doubt doesn't stop you. So actually, you, you might doubt yourself, but it doesn't overcome your belief in yourself. I really believe that people can completely believe in themselves, but that doesn't mean they feel good about themselves. In fact, they can struggle and feel terrible about mm. themselves, but that doesn't disable their self-belief. Mm. And I think that they are, they have connections between two of them. So, what, so much what I like about what you're saying is like that idea of like gratitude, like building in these practices of discipline so that you actually, your mood is lifted. And as your mood is lifted, you might start feeling better about yourself. And if you already believe in yourself and you feel better about yourself, imagine those two things combined, what you could do with it. Um, rather than you believe in yourself, but you don't feel good about yourself. So you're in a state of constant suffering while also being able to do incredible things. That was amazing. <laughs> that was what you just described is dope. That was absolutely amazing. That's yeah, yeah. That's when you said comedians. Yeah. That's the first thing I, I thought of is this is the struggle that they have. Yeah, 
and com combining the two. Yeah, and like what a gift they give us, but like the suffering that goes into that gift. It, it comes to you because um, musicians are very much the same, but they have these records that live on. You know, mm -hmm. so it's like the suffering that goes into a great song is like out of this world. Mm -hmm. um, comedians are different because like they're it's they are the product, and once mm -hmm. they're gone, they're gone. But a musician leaves behind songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I had a chance to meet one, and I, I think I shared with you at the beginning of the uh, before we were off camera that has has passed away, has taken his life. Robin Williams. He was incredible. When I was in my 20s, I was out uh, right out of college. We were two months out of college. A buddy of mine was in his aunt in L.A. And we went to the comedy club in L.A. And uh, we snuck in because we didn't have any money. And the, the manager kicks us out. We, so we, we split a beer. Next thing you know, Robin Williams is walking past. Toward, and I'm like, holy shit. It's my favorite comedian. I'm, I'm going to get up. I'm going to talk to him. So I run after him. Goes into a little bathroom, kind of one of these New York bathrooms, you know, tiny sink, urinal, even smaller toilet. He does his business and washes my hands. He comes out and goes, Robin Williams, it's great to meet you. It was nice to meet you. I said, I loved your role in Moscow on the Hudson, uh, which was shot actually in New York City, most of it. Uh, I said, I'm Ukrainian, come from a Ukrainian background. I speak fluently and I took a year of Russian. I know how hard it is, even though the language was similar to learn. I said, you spoke beautifully without an accent. And he said to me, I took a three-month intensive course to learn Russian. I didn't want to have an accent. You're the first person that ever recognized that I didn't speak with an accent. And as we're walking out, he says, are you going to come see my show? And he opens the door, and there's a manager who kicked us out standing in the doorway. And he goes, Jim, do me a favor. I brought a good friend of mine to come watch my show. <laughs> Face was red as my shirt. Whew, stuck it to the man there. Good for you. And Mike, like, meanwhile, guy first row. Mike eventually opens the door, and I like wave him in. We sit down, and Robin, well, it was a weeknight. There was nobody around. They practiced their shtick, you know, on, on a small audience. And we got a performance from Robin Williams. And that, talk about gratitude and kindness, like doing that, just by, by connecting with him. Yeah. In that connection, I, and I share that story with folks about connecting with people and I, validating them. You know, I, I I told them I appreciate you, I appreciate your skill, something you've done, not just oh you're a great performer, I, you know, which is you're a great performer, but I I value something. And when I share that story about how do we do that with folks, how do we connect with people? And I had breakfast this morning around the corner, I had a waiter, and we. We had a great, great conversation and, you know, about his, talked about his life a little bit. Where is he from? And he's from South America. And, uh, and I just, I need a couple, you know, what do you need? I said, I just need a, a toothpick. I need a cup of coffee and then I'm good to go. And he goes, oh, toothpicks are over there. And I said, okay, fine. Well, of course he brought me a toothpick. He went out of his way to give me a toothpick, which I didn't, you know, but because we connected, you follow me? We had this deeper layer conversation, the human conversation, just amazing things happened. I'm going sideways on you no, a little, no, little bit. I apologize, maybe it's not where we're going. No, it's perfect, it's perfect. I, but you hit on something. I, I do want to touch on stand-up comedians. Um, so, you know, if a soccer team is practicing, are you practicing in front of the game? Before the game? What do you mean? No, like a soccer team is practicing. You're not practicing in front of the audience that's going to eventually watch the game. Correct. 
you're practicing yeah. for practice. On your own, yeah. When a band is writing a new song or a new record, they're practicing their practice room. Mm -hmm. Stand-up comedians practice on stage in front of an audience, whether it's a packed crowd <sighs> or a small crowd. It is one of the most visceral ways of, of developing your skill and, and art and your, and your act. And they do that, not sometimes, they do that for what they do. They, they're working it out, right? It's, and I have such admiration. Like, I don't have, like, I, first of all, I'm not that funny. Uh, but, like, I don't have the guts to do that. The amount... And this is the thing, like, you know, I've, I've talked to a, a few stand-up comedians and, and they can be quite humble. Oh, I'm just, I'm too stupid to know that. Like, they'll diminish it, but I was like, no, you believe in yourself. And even a bad stand-up comic believes in themselves enough to do that thing. Maybe they're not funny, but I admire their grit more than anything because that is, that is a self-belief that, like, I want everyone to have. And their audience tells them whether or not their self-belief is warranted. Mm -hmm. they can port that self-belief into other things in their life as stand-up comedy doesn't work out because when you believe in yourself you can do things but I also firmly believe it does not mean you feel good about yourself and you can be deeply self-critical depressed have anxiety all those things if, if you're a total failure in life but whatever it is and I'm going to bring it back to the beginning of our conversation your passion if you have your passion and you zone in on it and like you're like that's it you can believe in yourself to take those risks to be in that space and I think self-belief is more common but liking yourself or feeling good about yourself is uncommon and I think that combination of those two um, what a gift it would be for the world if we could get both of those in there plus also like good moral fiber <laughs> I'm totally totally down there and I'm as you're as you're talking my wheels are turning is how how can how can the universe be intentional on helping comedians in this journey which is what we're talking about because that's the piece that that they're that, that they need help with with selflessness is another part of it you know gratitude is a part that makes you happy i had a i used to have a colleague that said that it's almost almost impossible to be sad and grateful at the same time like when you're grateful you know you're you are you're happy and dopamine you start feeling good about yourself also selflessness when you do things altruistically for others we become happier totally. like for sure so these are these are specific ways and skills of helping folks in that journey i uh that was part of my journey when i lived in brooklyn i lived it three years after eventually through my journey of uh realizing that i could buy myself something besides macaroni and cheese for for lunch the next next month and i could pay my bills eventually i moved to brooklyn uh, my youngest daughter went to college uh, so i need i didn't need to be 10 minutes away from home where i could see her on a regular basis so i lived in brooklyn uh smith street uh not too too far from here uh right uh, busy street brownstone fourth floor and uh I remember I come in, I don't know anybody in the building, right? Not, there's no elevator, top floor. Open the door first day, and you know, brownstones. Well, this is a brownstone right here, duh, right? Door opens, there's two doors just like this. And then there's mail, right? There's mail, there's like eight mailboxes, and it was first floor, long hallway, no apartments, second, third, and fourth, okay? And I was the top floor. So I opened it, no mail for me, I just arrived. I go down the hall and I see all these packages. I pick up one of the package, I go up, it's 3A, 
I'm at 4A, I drop it off and I go up to 4A. Now, I don't know anybody in the apartment. I just know people in 4B, husband, wife, four-year-old child, and innocent. Why, why did I, first of all, why did I pick up the package and drop it off? All right, why did I do that? Because you're a genuinely helpful person. Thank you. Mm. Yes, that, yeah. Uh, thank you, I am. Mm. But actually why I did it, because I could. Because mm -hmm. I have two hands. I had no packages with me. I didn't have any soccer balls or things that I had to bring upstairs. And I can do that. I can pick up the package and someone else comes in. Maybe they have groceries. Maybe they have, you know, and I could just, I could just, I'm able to do that, right? It's a simple, simple act. That's why I did it. Um, go recruiting, come back two months later from a recruiting trip. There's a package outside my door. Cool as that. Again, I don't know. I don't know what in the bill. It's not like, I did this. Look, everyone, you, you tracking? Yeah. Like, that's pretty cool. Six months later, maybe seven months later, I come open the door. Now, you know, I got my mail. Open my mail, little mail. Open the second door. Look down the hall. There's the dad walking up the stairs, holding the infant, four-year-old daughter behind him, and walking up the stairs. Daddy, daddy. She pulls. She goes, wait, wait. I want to pick up a package today, and I want to drop it off in front of someone's door. I'm like, wow, how cool is that? A four-year-old girl learned that helping others is a good feeling. Now, that was never my goal, my friend. It was never my goal to, hey, what a good guy I am, dropping off packages. It was never, my goal was I could just do that. So we have those opportunities every single day and moment. When we do these things, people copy and see what we do as leaders, as mentors, as parents, as CEOs, as coaches. So that's a part of our journey in terms of being aware of your actions, how they have that ripple effect on others. It is. So, you know, we're kind of coming towards the, the close of our, of our conversation. I, I love how it's kind of circling back. So let me talk. I will share something with you, if you don't mind, about what I think about being a leader. Um, leaders can be in like all you know, genres, like all, all different places. Community leader, uh, soccer coach, corporate leader, uh, someone who leads uh, just some recycling thing in the neighborhood. Leaders can, can be um, all sorts of people. You step into that role, and you have taken on an experience that you are not anticipating in many ways, because you are exposed to the best and worst of people. In many ways, you're exposed to the best and worst of yourself as well. And when I was young, I, I've always kind of naturally fallen into leadership roles. Um, but I grew up in the 80s, and so I, I really came up with the hero archetype. You know, it's like the who's the hero of the show, doing good things, being a good person. And somewhere along the line, I realized it's like, I think I'm spending a lot of time wanting to be a hero. Mm. Like I'm trying to be like the white knight, the good person. Mm. You know, like, but I'm not doing it. I wasn't not not, not doing it because I wanted to do good things or, or whatever. Like part of it was I'm just kind of a natural leader. I fall into those roles. I'm, I'm, I'm very capable of getting things done. So it's just like a natural thing for me to do. But part of it was a little bit of that, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling the, he the hero archetype. And when I realized that, I really like was like, homie, nobody asked you to be the hero. You know, nobody asked you to do this. Nobody asked you that. And some people don't want that from you. Some people are like, who's this arrogant prick who's like stepping in and doing this thing? 
And I really had to take a step back and be like, as soon as you step into a leadership role, holding up a mirror of like, why am I doing this? And am I ready for all the consequences that come along with it? Is I think one of the most important things for people to do. It's really easy to get caught in that track race of career where you're like, okay, now I'm this, and next I want like a management role. Next I want this role, next I want that role. And I totally understand why people do it. It's like you're setting horizons to, to cross. Totally get it. It's like life in many ways can be like that. Goal setting. Yeah, totally. Crossing into that leadership space means you have to understand the best and the worst in yourself and why you do things. And you have to also be willing to deal with the best and the worst of people, mm-hmm. including criticism, mm-hmm. including people being that one person in the building who doesn't pick up the packages. They're like, Everyone bring me my packages, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do right. that. There's all sorts of ways that people interact. So, from your kind of the way that you look at leadership and the way that you look at like coaching, mentorship, and developing people, how do you prepare? Either it could be young minds or or anyone you meet in any of your work about that diligent work of really looking at yourself, like why why do you want to be a leader, and are you willing to deal with your own best and worst self and also the best and worst selves of others. Like, how do you help people with that, that concept in whatever way that you turn them up? You know, with that question, that's a, that's a long question, man. It's a big one. That, that, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, the, the question I would have for them is, are, do you want to grow? Are, are, you, are, you, are you comfortable where you are? Are you satisfied? Or, or are you willing to grow? Mm-hmm. And the, the response generally is, yeah, I want to grow. So to, to grow, you have to be uncomfortable, right? To, and it's an old saying, once you're, unco- once you're uncomfortable, you become comfortable, yeah. right? In conversations that we're having, experiences that we're having. So are you willing to, to do that, first of all? And if you are, there's going to be backlash. There's going to be people that are going to go, what are you, stupid? You know, you're not, whatever. Are you comfortable to do that? And sometimes they'll be right when they say, what are you, stupid? You're like, you got to be able to hold up a mirror and be like, oh, actually, I'm acting like an idiot. Right? I, I am acting like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I am okay. And I appreciate what you're saying. I value what you're saying. I need to go a different route. Yeah. I need to go a different route. But on the other hand, if you believe in something like your journey, a little bit of your journey that I know about, that you work for a group, and you're like, it didn't feel right, right? Your, your prior uh, group that you work with that you were doing leadership space, mm-hmm. learned a lot as we talked off mic and I've had a little bit of some of the interviews and it was really good, but you learned not the way to do things, not the way to lead, not the formula. You're like, damn it, I can do a better job, right? I can do a better job and I want to do a better job. And if you, you've gotten that experience that's not a good one, then go and do it. Go, go, and, go and do it because you now have that skill, skill set that you know the, the wrong way. I, I had some really pretty bad coaches too. When, when I, when I, my first college coach was a bad coach. I was, when I didn't do well with my grades, I struggled. He didn't care about me. He didn't care about me. He was like, we had 11 guys that transferred out the first year I went to college and I, and I was one of them after the first year. He didn't give a shit about me. And I said, if I ever get into the space of coaching, I'm going to care about people. I might not have all the answers or be the best coach, but I'm going to care about you and help you in your journey. Because I had this toxic, horrible experience of the guy that, that mentored me. You follow me? That's how I kind of took that experience of I could do better. You know, I could do better. And I want to do better. And I want to help people. So that negative, crappy experience I had helped frame my journey. 
You follow me? So as you're moving on and, and, you're, and you're believing in yourself, that's an important part is take all those data points, the five Ps I talk about, the processing, and use that information, abstract that information, and use it to yourself and validate who you are and what you're doing. And does that, that make Perfect answer, man. Like, I think the simplest way to say it is like, hey, you want to be a leader? Are you ready to grow? And most people would be like, I'm ready to grow. I'd be like, no, are you really ready? I'm ready to grow. Like, here's what that means. Like, your story, and, you know, I, I, we've had such a, like, cool conversation here that, like, we didn't get into the whole backstory, which I think is fascinating. And, you know, it makes me feel like after the book comes out, let's, like, do a part two so we Love can get to. in that. Because I'm really interested in um, uh, the turnarounds, how you've helped so many teams turn around and the philosophy. I really want to unpack the, like, if a team is struggling, how do you get them out of that mindset? I, love I, think, it's, I think it's compelling. I just don't want us to do a three-hour interview. No, 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 no. I would love to do that. Yeah. But the, that, are you ready to grow? I don't know any great leader. I don't know any great leader who hasn't suffered and struggled. And whether it's a community leader, a political leader, uh, a, you know, someone from like a great songwriter, whatever it is, I don't know anyone who hasn't suffered. And I don't just mean suffering, like life suffering, mm -hmm. but I mean so many who hasn't had the midnight of the soul repeatedly, who's like been like, oh my God, like I fail, like I flopped, but in a bad way. I like, I had all these things happen, but they persevered because they believed in themselves. And I think that belief, and what I would say is like purpose, is going back to um, how we started the conversation, that's the thing that I think helps define people of whether or not they're willing to grow. Is this part of your purpose? Is this your purpose? If so, you're going to grow. You're totally willing to do it. You know it's going to be hard. You're going to give me chills again. I, I, you're, you're giving me chills. Can I share with you how I end my workshops? Yeah. One of the questions I ask early on is what's, uh, what's the most, what do you want to achieve in life? What is your goal? What do you want to achieve? It's wide open. It's for innovation. It's for growth. What do you? What? What is it that you want to achieve? And it could go anywhere. That's an early thing that I that I ask. Um, and I use the example of of Dick Fosbury. Dick Fosbury wanted to jump higher. You know what I mean? That's what he wanted to do. Yeah. And he kept on working at it. And he said, "I'm going to do it a different way, man. I don't give a damn if people are going to laugh at me because everybody laughed at him, by the way, when he did it backwards. I didn't tell you to say that part. They weren't like, oh, you're doing it backwards. You're pretty cool doing it that way. Everybody was like, you're an idiot. You're weird. <laughs> yeah. And his coach was like, go back the normal way. Right? So I, I asked that question, what do you want to, what is your, what do you want to achieve in your life? What do you want to achieve? So I end the workshops like this, the, my version of the starfish story. Are you familiar with the starfish story? This is my version. A young boy was walking along the beach in the South Pacific and it was scorching hot. It was so hot, the bottom of his feet were burning and he had to walk into the water to cool his feet off. As he's walking, he sees all these starfish that have washed ashore, filling the sand, they're drying and they're dying. So he goes and takes one starfish at a time and wades in the water and he, and he throws it into the water, back into the water and he walks a few more yards and picks up the starfish and throws another one. He come across, comes across as a man standing there looking at him. Older man, he says, what are you doing? The boy says, I'm, I'm saving the starfish. He says, what's the matter with you? You're not going to make a difference. There's thousands of starfish as far as the eye could see. With that, the boy goes onto the beach and picks up the biggest starfish he could find. 
and he wades into the water up to his waist and he leans back and with all his might, he tosses it as far as he could see and washes as it dips into the ocean. And then he turns and says, I just made a difference with that one, with that one. If anybody ever doubts your goal in life, your journey, remember, you're the person in the starfish story. I love it. All right. We're going to close off with three questions. They're going to get increasingly difficult. Are you ready? A lot of people, I, I laugh about this a lot, is that, and I, I, it sounds like I'm laughing in a mean way. A lot of people in the past seven-ish years have put on the coach hat and said, I'm going to be a coach, or I consider myself a coach in all sorts of different ways of coaching. And I always come back to what makes, what, what tells someone that they should do this, that they have something of value to bring to the table. If someone wants to call themselves a coach, awesome, go for it. The, the results will prove themselves. Totally fine with that. But as you and I know, a bad coach can like really, really impact someone in a negative way. So here's question one. If someone's being is about to put on that hat, like I have something to give. What's one piece of advice that you'd give someone before they actually partake in the act of actually coaching someone? I'm not saying mentoring, coaching. Number one, you have to care. You have to deeply care about that person. Whoever you're coaching, people or that person, you have to deeply care and be invested. When you care about someone and they know that you are deeply invested and you care and you're leading from the heart, incredible things will happen. People will jump with you, they'll carry things with you, and they'll believe in you if you lead from the heart and you show and you lead with love. Great. Second question, and it's a two-part question. Through your journey, professional and personal, what's one thing that you've learned about yourself that you didn't like and that you've been successful in changing? Even if in changing, it's like I'm still working on it. But what's one thing you can say I've been successful in changing that thing? Knowing that I need to surround myself with people that can offer me more knowledge and information. Great. What's one thing that you've learned about yourself that you, you don't feel good about that you haven't been able to fully um, change or shift yet? What I just shared with you and everyone else. Yeah. That was probably more for me yeah. about believing in myself yeah. is that where I was nine years ago. And, and if you told me nine years Later, and I'm going to have this conversation with you in Lower Manhattan, have this unbelievable experience. I would have never, ever believed it. I would have doubted it, that I'm ready to drop a book this afternoon that's going to be in Barnes and & Nobles and Amazon that may go global, that's going to help improve people's lives. I would not believe it. So to remind myself that I am worthy and I'm actually good enough to do what I do to help improve people's lives. All right. I love that. Um, finally, as we are closing off, if there's one thing that you could share with 
the listeners that you would say like, hey, if you never think of me again, if you never read my book again, if there's one thing that I want you to remember, what's that one thing you want someone to remember? That you have the power to decide. As Viktor Frankl said, that above everything else, no matter what happens to you and what situations you are in and what, how toxic they are, is you have the ability and the power to decide for yourself how you're going to respond. And you are a worthy individual and to care about yourself and love yourself first and foremost. Oh yeah. All right, my man, we're, as we're wrapping up any, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? Where can they look you up? Where can they connect with you? Um, so in Instagram, just follow me on Instagram. You can do that. What's your handle? Uh, at TJ Kostecki. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn, which folks know all about LinkedIn. Facebook's kind of more dinosaur, but if someone wants to do that, I, I'm not, a, I don't do Twitter, so I'm not a Twitter guy. Uh, and then my website, visiontrainingforlife.com, visiontrainingforlife.com. It talks about some of the workshops I do and, and things that your outcomes out of workshops. Right, so and then the book, Eyes well, Up. Tell us again just about the book and when's it coming out? The title of the book is Eyes Up. It'll be in a few months in Amazon and you'll be able to purchase it anywhere. All right, so let's help this book go global. Uh, I'm a big believer. Uh, TJ, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a gift. Absolutely, man, for sure. All right, everyone, I'll see you in the outro. And Mike, drop the beat. That was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much, TJ. You know, everyone, uh, when you're thinking about whatever is the thing that you're doing now, professionally or creatively, I encourage you to think, what can it do to help um, fuel what you're going to do in the future? So, for example, you know, I grew up basically playing in punk bands. That was my main focus. And then I was also a therapist. Those two things combined is what set me up for what I'm doing now. And if I'm going to be honest, probably more of my coaching style comes from playing in a punk band and touring the country than anything else. When you think of TJ's story, it's like he's a soccer coach and he's taken that, that root of it and been able to do so many things with other people. Like taking the idea of coaching and helping people apply it to their work or their life. Such an incredible idea. Um, and it all starts from just taking your practical experience in something and seeing how you can use it later. So it doesn't have to be coaching, but what you're doing now can definitely be a part of it, uh, the chapter of what you do next. And it might even be the thing that sends you into that space. So with that, I'm going to close off. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One step. One step.